Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Psalm 16. At the end of the reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. Please, let's respond by saying thanks be to God. Psalm 16. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him, at, with him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let the faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Delmo. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you because at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Lord, we ask, oh God, that you'd help us to have a sneak peek this morning and that, Lord, in gazing upon your glory, will be eternally satisfied. In Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Um, special welcome to our guests this morning. We like to see new faces, so um, we're happy you're here. So we've been doing a series called Prayers of the Saints. And what we've been doing, basically, is to walk through certain Psalms in the Bible um, that show us how to pray and what to pray for. And so we've looked at Psalm 1, we've looked at Psalm 2, we've looked at Psalm 46, we've looked at Psalm 51, and today we're looking at Psalm 16 in a sermon we've titled Prayer of the Worshipper. It's the penultimate sermon in the series. Um, we'll end next week with Psalm 23. But we'll be looking at the prayer of the worshipper this morning. And if you've been a Christian for a while, you've been in Christian settings, um, one of the things you've probably heard a lot of is when, when songs are going on, when the adoration is going on, is especially when it's slow. Let's be in the mood of worship. as though worship were this, you know, somber, sad, mournful, reflective thing that we do. Um, and so it raises the question, what really is worship? What is our disposition in worship? How should we worship? And I like something a theologian said. Um, he says, worship 
is the expression of God-centeredness in individual and public life. Worship is the expression of God-centeredness in individual and public life. So really, whether you are singing slow songs or you are singing fast songs, God's call on our lives is to be worshippers. And so we'll be considering this psalm today under four headings. Um, Pleasure in the person of God, we see that in verses 1 to 2. Pleasure in the people of God, we see that in verses 3 to 4. Pleasure in the ways of God, we see that in verses 5 to 8. And pleasure in the salvation of God, we see that in verses 9 to 11. So the first one, pleasure in the person of God. The psalmist begins by saying, keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. And the picture we see here is of someone who is running to God for protection. We don't know whether the enemies are chasing him, whether his village people are doing him. What is clear so far is that he is in need of protection. And so far, there's really nothing Christian about this prayer. We live in a very religious city, um, Lagos, where everybody is constantly praying for deliverance from enemies. You may know very ungodly people who go to vigils and who are sprinkling holy water around their house and asking God to keep them safe from their enemies. So there's really nothing Christian about this prayer. But what makes the difference, what is Christian about this prayer, is that we actually see David's prayer requests. So he doesn't ask God to kill his enemies. He doesn't ask God to um, do something magical. Instead, he makes a bold declaration about the person of God. So in verse 2, he says, You are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. David expresses his pleasure in the person of God. Notice the possessive pronoun David uses. It says, you are my God. And all through this psalm, we see David expressing this very personal, intimate relationship with God. We see it in verse 6. We see it in verse 8. We see it in verse 11. So God is not just the Lord or God up there. God is David's God, my God. Um, for those of us who are Yoruba, or even generally now, the culture is where you see an older person, you call the person daddy, you call the person mommy, call the person brother, uncle, and whatever. And, and the story goes that the father knows who his children are. And so when there's trouble, you can shout daddy from morning till night. He's, because he's not your daddy, he won't listen to you. And so it's, it's in this sense that David says, you are my God. There's a very intimate and personal relationship that David expresses in using that word. And then he goes on to say, apart from you, I have no good thing. That's the language of lovers. Some of us may remember when we're still chasing our wives, or our husbands were chasing us, or, or, you, or you're chasing your husband, if that's the case. That person seemed to you like the only person that existed. The room will be packed full like this, and the person will walk in, and that's all you can see. Be like, baby, you are the only one for me. You are the only one I have in this world. The reason why we used to do lots of, back in the day, midnight calls, um, a lot of texting. For those of us who, at some point, were in different countries with our 
beloved ones or in different locations. We didn't mind spending all the money we had on phone calls. Why? Because we loved that person. Apart from that person, there was no good thing. <laughs> Thank God for WhatsApp. And so that is the way David is speaking about God. Apart from you, I have no good thing. We see him use this language again in verse 5. Lord, you are my chosen portion, my cup. Verse 7, I will praise the Lord. Verse 8, I will keep my eyes always on the Lord. Verse 11, you fill me with joy in your presence. See, David is not just gushing or talking about God up there. He's talking, he's expressing a very intimate and deep affection for God. Not for God's deliverance, not for God's actions, but for the person of God. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you why we gather like this each week. Why do we leave our locations, spend all kinds of sums of money to come here, to transport ourselves here, to listen to sermons every week, to gather and sing songs every week, to confess sin every week, to give offerings every week? It is because by nature we are very forgetful. We are gospel amnesiacs who are constantly in need of a divine burst of energy to remind us of who God is and all that God is for us in Christ. We have an overinflated view of man and a very underdeveloped view of God. And so it's easy for us to get swung to and fro by the things that go on around us if we're not constantly gazing upon who God is and expressing pleasure for God in Christ. Let me give you a prayer point that God will always answer. You may have prayed certain prayers and God has never answered, but this one, I assure you, God will always answer. Ask God, in whom or in what have I been seeking refuge? That is a prayer point God will always answer. What we worship, what we prize, what we seek pleasure in is most visible in times of discomfort, in times of danger. We may lift our hands up all we want during adoration. We may sing songs about God's love forever. But what we constantly seek refuge in is what we worship. See, there is nothing apart from God that can truly satisfy us. There's nothing apart from God that can truly protect us. And so if you've, um, you're familiar with Things Fall Apart, if you haven't read it, well, I won't say shame on you, but I just said it. <laughs> um, so this is it's one of the very classic works of Nigerian literature. And then Chino Achebe tells the story of a man called Okonkwo, who was a very ferocious fighter. And so in um, Okonkwo's village, there was a rival village that they had, where they were at war with. And so the rival village made um, an appeasement with a young boy called Ikemefuna. And Ikemefuna went to Okonkwo's house and was in Okonkwo's charge for a while. And Okonkwo loved this boy, very young boy. He loved him, he cared for him. He was more like his son to him. But then the day came when this boy had to be sacrificed for the village. And the story goes that Okonko had been warned not to have anything to do with the death of the boy because this boy calls you father. That was what the person advised him said. And so the boy is going in front, and then somebody strikes him but misses him. 
and then Chino Achebe records that Okonkwo, because Okonkwo loved more the praises of the people and was afraid what people would think about him, he picked up the cutlass and struck that boy and killed him. Now, if you are familiar with the story, you know at the end of Things Fall Apart, Okonkwo dies or commits suicide because the village does not affirm him. Why? He was seeking refuge in the people. And when the people did not affirm him, he felt his life had no meaning and he committed suicide. What we are seeking refuge in is truly what we seek and worship. And so this morning, the psalmist presents us with this very clear example that if we say we are worshipers of God, we must be people who seek pleasure in God alone. Not in God's acts, not in God's deliverance for us, but in the person of God. But then secondly, he shows us that we must be people who seek pleasure in the people of God. So by now we'll have expected David, okay, yes, you know, the way um, when we want to make formal requests in, in Nigeria, and then you first sing the praises of people, ah, daddy, you're the only one, or guy, you're the best, Mr. Governor, you're this. But um, really, so we have a project in our area. We'll have expected David to do that kind of thing. But what does David do? He goes on to express his delight in the people of God. So we see in verses 3 to 4, he says, I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the holy ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. When David speaks of the holy people in the land, he's not speaking of a particular sect of people. He's speaking about all of the children of Israel. So we see this language in Deuteronomy 14, verse 2, where God says to the children of Israel, he says, For you are, holy, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. In Exodus 19, 5-6, God says this again to the people of Israel. Before he gives them the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, he gives them the basis for which they are called to obey in Exodus 19. And one of the things God says to them in Exodus 19, in verses 5-6, to six, is that although the whole earth is mine, verse 6, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Notice, the holiness of the children of Israel is not because of what they did or who they were, but because of whose they were. You see, we usually think of holiness in terms of moral perfection. And that's true. The Bible does speak of holiness, moral perfection. But the Bible also speaks of holiness as a separation, belonging to a different category, a group separate unto God. And so we see that when he speaks of the holy people, he's talking about God's chosen people, the children of Israel. But then David also makes a comparison with those who run after other gods. He says, essentially, that there are only two choices. You are either worshipping God or worshipping other gods. There's no in-between. There's no trying to do both. You are either worshipping God or worshipping false gods. And brothers and sisters, the opposite of true worship isn't non-worship. It's idolatry. It's either worshiping God as part of the holy people of God or worshiping false gods as part of those who run after other gods. 
we are all worshippers. Even if you are an atheist, even if you don't believe in God, even if you don't care about God. But the psalmist tells us that there is a repercussion for running after other gods. He says that their sorrows will multiply more and more. The language used here is the same thing with um, the curse God pronounces on the woman in Genesis 3. So in Genesis 3, God says to the woman that the pains of labor will intensify more and more. And so the idea is that compared to what she was experiencing at the time, what she will begin to experience or experience as time goes on will be a multiplication of what she was experiencing at the time. And so brothers and sisters, we know from the story of the Bible that when the Bible speaks of suffering more and more, multiplied sorrows, it is ultimately of the eternal destruction that awaits those all of us who do not worship the true God, but turn and run after false gods. The Bible says that while there is eternal pleasure, like we see in verse 11, for those who worship the true God, those who worship false gods will suffer more and more. And if you're a non-Christian this morning, we're glad you are here. If your disposition to Jesus Christ is one of indifference, if your disposition to, one of, to Jesus Christ is one out of a rebellious heart, can I just gently and urgently urge you this morning that no matter the pleasure, no matter the enjoyment you might be feeling right now, it is a bad deal. It's like, like an investment pitch that has been made to you. I said, this investment is the best investment ever. For the next... 10 years, you are going to reap 100% on all that you put in. But here's the catch. After 10 years, you're going to lose all your money. After 10 years, you'll go bankrupt. After 10 years, you'll be consigned to live under the bridge. And eventually, you'll be killed. Nobody in their right mind is going to take that investment. And that's the same thing, ultimately, brothers and sisters. When we do not worship the true God, there's eternal misery and sorrow away from the presence of God. But back to David. What does David declare? He doesn't just declare that he will not run after false gods. He says instead that he will delight in the people of God. And it doesn't, it, on, on a first glance, it doesn't make much sense. You have said, oh, no, no, no. If you don't delight in, in false gods, then you should delight in the true God. But what the Holy Spirit wants us to see is that there is no delighting in God, there is no seeking pleasure in God if we are not seeking pleasure in the people of God. When David says they are the noble ones or the excellent ones in, in verse 3, again, like I said, he's not talking about what they have done or what they achieved. He's essentially talking about whose they are. And so the Bible reveals to us that particularly in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, echoing the language we see that I just said in Exodus 19 and in Deuteronomy 14, 2, that if you are a Christian, you have become part of God's holy nation. I'm sure we, at least many of us know the passage. It says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, 
but now you have received mercy. If you are a Christian, you are part of God's holy people. Your identity is no longer just your ethnic grouping, but in the fact that God has purchased you because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We are now part of God's family. And so, brothers and sisters, even though we may not always feel like it, right? We may not always feel holy. And then you look at that brother or sister and you're like, I'm certainly sure if I don't feel holy, that person is not holy. We may not always feel like it. We may not always look like it. But we are part of God's holy people. And we must take pleasure in one another. We cannot afford to be indifferent to the gathering of believers. We must become people who are invested in the community of the local church. And so I know, you know, Lagos is a very private place. We all like to mind our business. We all like to keep solo and do our own things and don't mess in other people's business. They your lane, I did my lane. But God, the fact that God saves us individually does not mean that God grows us individually. God saves us individually, but he does not grow us individually. You see, Christianity is more like football than boxing. We fight together. We don't fight alone. We run as a pack. We don't run solo. And so notice again that David uses the word delight in the people of God, not endure, not manage, not cope, but delight in the people of God. And so let me just give us one form of application for this. Open your doors. Just invite people into your home. I know it's probably going to be awkward at first, but if we say we delight in the people of God, this is something that we are going to have to learn to do. Can I urge the married folk here and older singles in case you haven't noticed, just look around. There are a lot of hungry single men in this church. And I don't mean that as a diss. It's just an observation. Invite them over to your houses. Say, blank, blank, why don't you come to my house today? I can tell you, if you don't know any, come and meet me afterwards. I will give you names. But here's the point, really. Many of us want to speak into people's lives when we haven't even invested in them. And so when you invite brothers and sisters over to your house, you, you begin to find out more about them. You know what this person is struggling with. You know the person's background. You know what the person is wrestling with. And from there, you might be able to speak into their lives or help them in one way or the other. Can I urge us younger folk and single people, can you walk up to one or two older people and say, I'd like to be close to you. I'd like to come to your house. I'd like to you know, serve you in one way or the other. If they have kids, ask, can I babysit? Allow the husband and the wife to go on a date. Married people love that one. They want to go on dates. But they are never able to go on dates because they have babies. Maybe I'm just speaking for myself. <laughs> but really, the point is this. We have to be invested in one another. We have to take steps to be invested in one another. I've been part of a number of churches. I've been in a number of churches. The people who always say there is no love in this church, they are the people who were least invested in that church. If we are constantly taking steps to be invested in the local community, guess what? It's going to be very hard for you to just pull out. 
It's going to be very hard for you to gossip about the person. It's going to be very hard for you to get angry at the person and remain, you know, unforgiving of the person. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing like worshiping God that does not lead to a pleasure in the people of God. And if you don't see it this morning, maybe you should pray and ask God. Ask God to help you, to give you a delight for the people of God. Ask God to help you, to give you ideas for how you can serve people, how you can wait upon them, how you can meet them at the points of their needs. If we are going to have pleasure in God, more be people who have pleasure in the people of God. And thirdly, we see that true worship is pleasure in the ways of God. And so, David says in verses 5 to 8, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines are falling for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, um, you can, you know, resonate with the fact that many of us have prayed with verse 6, claiming our possession, claiming that the lines are falling for us in pleasant places. And when we are going for contracts, interviews, Father, every line in this office has fallen for me. You know, um, and just like Pastor Femi showed us last week from Psalm 2, that we are probably misapplying this verse. And I, and I strongly believe that we have misapplied this verse. And a closer look this morning will show us how we have, what the psalmist actually has in mind and how we can apply it properly. And so in verse 5, David continues the theme of delighting in God in verses 1 to 2. The psalmist identifies God as his portion, his cup, and his security. So the idea here is of things, of something being served, of an apportionment being made. Now, if you are familiar with Yoruba weddings, Yoruba weddings are very extravagant, very colorful. But there is this particular aspect of the, of the wedding ceremony, the traditional wedding ceremony, where there's a presentation of gifts. Never mind that the gifts have been demanded from you by the grooms, by the bride's family. But anyway, they are supposed to be gifts. And so they present all kinds of things, crates of Coke, drinks, I mean, just yam, traveling bags, clothes, everything. And then they now call upon the bride. Come and choose what you like the most in this thing. I've been to weddings. <laughs> I've never seen a bride, no matter how ungodly that bride is. She always goes to pick a white Bible. I don't, I don't know why, really. As if you don't have enough Bibles at home. But anyway, she always goes to pick a Bible. Now, in the same way, the point of that story is that what the psalmist is saying here is really like that. That there are many things, God, there are many things I have, but you are the only one I truly want. You are the only one I truly seek and desire. The idea is that if property is being divided, God, you are my portion. If drinks are being shared, God, you are my cup. 
if there is refuge being sought, God, you alone give me security. He is dripping with pleasure in the person of God. And so he leads us to verse 6. That if God is the psalmist's portion, if God is the psalmist's cup, if God is the psalmist's inheritance, then he can indeed say that these boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Amen. If you are familiar with the Old Testament, everything that they really had was land. And so God gives the instruction in Deuteronomy 19 not to move the boundary lines of another person's plot. And so you know to, today that when we buy land, one of the things we first do is to mount beacons along the land to, to delineate what is my property and what is your property. And so when the psalmist says, the lines are falling for me in pleasant places, it simply means that God alone is the inheritance I have. God is the only one I treasure. And if God is the only one I treasure, if God is the best inheritance I have, then I have a very beautiful inheritance. And so this is not a promise that we can get anything we want, anytime we want it, however we want it. It is a promise that we have all that we want and we have all that we need because we have God. Amen. Brothers and sisters, this is the problem with the prosperity gospel. The problem with the prosperity gospel is not that it promises us too much. It is that it promises us too little. It promises us that we can have fast cars and sexy bodies and beautiful wives and no illness, no sickness. When all that we truly have and need and can have is God. And if you are not outraged at that this morning, can I urge you in a gentle Christ-like manner to ask God to help you to truly see that nothing compares to God. Let's ask that God will make this a reality in our lives, that we will truly see God as the best inheritance that we have. But you see, tied very closely to the fact that the psalmist is delighting in God is that he is also delighting in God's ways. And so we see in verse 7 that the psalmist is taking pleasure in the counsel of God, in the counsel that God gives him. Again, the way he describes this counsel is very personal. He's not just rejoicing in the counsel of God as an objective truth. He's rejoicing in the counsel of God as personal and intimate in his life. And so he says, when he, when he tells us um, in the second part of verse 7, that even at night my heart instructs me, it could be metaphorical. It could, it could refer to the fact that I'm going through a dark season and the word of God is instructing me. Or it could also just mean that when I lay awake at night, I can't sleep because I keep meditating on the promises and the word of God. And if you are familiar with the story of David, you know that David constantly seeks count the counsel of God. He's constantly rejoicing in the counsel of God. Psalm 119 is a, is, a, is a 176 verse long meditation on the counsel of God. Psalm 1, which we um, considered a few weeks ago, in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, he's constantly rejoicing in the counsel of God. And so the question arises, what is the counsel of God? And when David talks about the counsel of God, he's simply referring to God's counsel, God's revealed will through his prophets and in his word. But then he goes on in verse 8 to say, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. You see, when David talks about keeping his eyes on the Lord, he's talking about a state of his will. 
He has determined to remain focused on God. He has determined and is resolute about seeking God. And so he presents us with the outcome in verse 8, that if I am truly resolute and looking at God, therefore I shall not be shaken. Brothers and sisters, if we are going to find pleasure in God, if we are going to be true worshippers of God, it must be people who remain unshakenly gazing at God, reflecting upon God's counsel in his word. God's counsel is not what Prophet X has told us about the people in our village who are doing us, so about how many times we have to pray and to recite certain psalms at, at night. God's counsel is God's word revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ supremely in the scriptures. John 1.1 tells us that Jesus Christ is God's word incarnate. The writer of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews 1 verse 2 that God has spoken supremely and finally in the person of Jesus Christ. And guess what? God has been so gracious to us to give us his word in the Holy Scriptures. There is no way we can truly worship God if we are not gazing upon God's word, if we are not looking upon God's word, if we are not reading God's word constantly. Brothers and sisters, how do we remain unshaken in a world that is constantly moving? How do we remain unshaken when the stock market crashes? How do we remain unshaken when we have no jobs and the trajectory of our life is just going down like that? How do we remain unshaken when we are grieving and in seasons of sorrow and nothing in our lives makes sense? We constantly keep our gaze upon the word of God. We constantly meditate upon the word of God. This is why we cannot afford to be cavalier or just indifferent, you know, to Bible reading or Bible memorization or listening to sermons or listening to the word of God preached and applied constantly around us. If we are going to be a people who truly worship God, who truly seek pleasure in God, must be a people who are constantly seeking pleasure and delighting in the word of God. But then finally, the psalmist shows us that it is not just enough to seek pleasure in the person of God. It is not just enough to seek pleasure in the people of God. It is not just enough to seek pleasure in the ways of God. It must be people who seek pleasure in the salvation of God. And so in verses 9 to 11, we see him rejoicing and full of a glad heart. Just when we thought that we'd understand all that David has been trying to say. David pulls another one on us. And like we say in Niger parlance, that we never expected it. In verse 10, we see David rejoicing over God's salvation. And he makes a bold claim that my whole being rejoices. Why? Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. So when David speaks of the realm of the dead, it's a Hebrew term um, um, of the realm of the dead or Sheol. is a Hebrew term for the grave. It's a Hebrew term for the place where dead people stay. And again, when he says faithful one, as he might say in the NIV, or the holy one, he's simply talking of himself as God's anointed or God's elect. Remember that we said that um, the children of Israel were God's holy people because God had called them out among several nations and called them to be his own people. He had separated them. And so similarly, 
like Pastor Femi also showed us last week, that the king was God's holy one because he was called out of these holy people and separated unto God's purpose as the king. And so when David speaks of God's deliverance here, or God's salvation here, he's talking about deliverance from death. But guess what, brothers and sisters? David died. David did not see the deliverance that he prophesied about. He did not see the deliverance that he spoke so eloquently about. We know this because 1 Kings 2 verse 10 tells us that David died and was buried with his fathers. And even on the day of Pentecost, when Peter was preaching, he says that David's tomb is here and still with us. And so it must mean that there is something beyond just David in this verse. It must mean that there is another Davidic king who will not die and who will not be abandoned to the grave. And as we saw last week, Jesus is this truly Davidic king. He was the one all through his life had unlimited pleasure in the person of God. He had unlimited pleasure in the people of God. He had unlimited pleasure in the ways of God. In fact, Psalm 40 verse 8 tells us that Jesus Christ submitted himself fully to God's will. And he said, I have come to do your will, O God. Your law is written upon my heart. When Jesus died, he did not die a gentle old death like David. Rather, he died a brutal young death, not for sins he had committed, but for the sins that others had committed. And unlike David, Jesus died that so that out of many, God might have a new set of holy people. When Jesus came before Herod, and confirmed that he was indeed the king, rather than be um, crowned with a diadem, with a crown of jewels and diamonds, he was given a crown of thorns. He died. He was buried. But God raised him. And so Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in Acts chapter 2, verse 22 to 36, quotes Psalm 16 and tells us, Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. And his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he would not be abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we all are witnesses of it. But it wasn't just Peter. The Apostle Paul also quoted this same psalm in Acts 13, 34 to 39. And I'll just read 36 to 39. It says, when David had served God's purpose in his generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors. His body decayed. But the one God has raised, Jesus, did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, therefore, brothers and sisters, I want you to know through Jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Brothers and sisters, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ was his coronation as the truly Davidic king who would never die and who would never be abandoned to the realm of the dead. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ was not just a coronation, it was also a purchase. 
His death was to buy people for God. And so all who are true believers in Jesus Christ have now been joined to him and have now become God's new holy people. Not because of what they've done, not because of who they are, but because of whose they are. And so we see all through the New Testament that the Bible keeps calling believers a new people, a new and holy people. But again, perhaps the most familiar of this to us is 1 Peter 2.9, where, where we are described as God's chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. Because we are Christ, brothers and sisters, we are God's holy people. But because we are God's holy people, we have the hope that Jesus Christ, that because Jesus Christ was not abandoned to the grave, he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, we also will not be abandoned to the grave and we will not be abandoned to the realm of the dead. Listen to Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15, 17 to 24. He says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who are falling asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we have all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through one man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through one man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Brothers and sisters, we have the hope that because we are Christ, and Christ is God's holy one who was not abandoned to the grave, we will not also be abandoned to the grave. Can we see David's point? There is no true worship of God if we are not seeking pleasure in the person of God, if we are not seeking pleasure in the people of God, if we are not seeking pleasure in the ways of God and also pleasure in the salvation of God. Brothers and sisters, our weekly worship gathering, what we do every Sunday, is only the preview of a movie that we'll see eventually. It is a sneak peek into eternity. The thrills and joys we, we feel when we sing the songs, the feeling of forgiveness when we say the confession, the assurance of being part of something larger when we say the creeds, the hope we feel when we hear the word of God preached, the desire for fulfillment when we respond in song and prayer, the faith we have when we receive the benediction. All those things are merely a foretaste of what awaits us in the new heavens and the new earth with Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be a true worshiper of God. We have pleasure in the person of God. We have pleasure in the people of God. We have pleasure in the ways of God. And we have pleasure in the salvation of God. Do you see why if we do not feel this way, we should be begging God to make it a reality in our lives? If Sunday is just a drudgery that we have to endure, we are missing out on something big, something great. Parents, can I just urge you that when you are coming in the morning and there's a lot of chit-chat in the car, can you just tell the kids to slow down 
and remind them about what the immense pre um, pleasure we have, the immense joy and opportunity we have to be gathered with God's people each week as a foretaste of eternity. Can I urge us that perhaps some of us need to fast and pray and ask God to help us. Maybe turn off your, your TV for a while. Maybe not renew your DSTV subscription for a while. Maybe it's okay to miss a few matches and just ask God, make this a reality in my life. Maybe you might want to readjust your schedule a bit and slot in five minutes here and 10 minutes there during the day just to pray and ask God to make this a reality in our lives. Worship of God is not just singing slow songs. It is seeking pleasure in all that God is for us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you do this for us. Not because of anything in and of ourselves. But Lord, because of Jesus Christ, your Holy One, who has called us to be part of his holy people. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church. Love Jesus. Love people. Love Lagos.